Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer and podcaster Alex Holmes, who hosts Time to Talk, a podcast about mental health and specifically what it means to be a man in the modern world. Alex is a young black British man still in his late 20s, so while there's a lot of overlap in the subjects we both cover on our podcast, we've got very contrasting experiences and perspectives on the subject. Alex has such a powerful insight and brings such a fresh, revealing perspective to this podcast. I was really delighted to share this conversation with him, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Alex, welcome to The Reset. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure to get to know you um, over recent weeks and was an honour to come on time to talk, which is a a fantastic podcast that we're going to get on to talking about shortly. But first, Alex, I want to ask you more about your own story, because so many of your podcasts are are predominantly focused on your guest story. Um, So I grew up in Northwest London. I still live in Northwest London Um, to you know, to second generation um, Jamaicans <laughs> um, in this, in the, in the UK. And um, yeah, like I had a, I had a pretty regular upbringing um, as, as like, you know, as you would expect it, it was um, typical, went to decent primary school, decent secondary school, but within all of those um within those years of being in school and studying i i began to slowly slowly um realize how much my kind of behavior had been tailored and clipped to fit some sort of masculine ideal and as I grew older, I started to I started to not recognize or reckon with things um, in the same way that a lot of my male family members would or um, friends would. Um, you know, I my behavior was consistently clipped. Um, the way I spoke was consistently clipped. I was consistently criticized um, by a lot of men about just. Um, the way I should be acting or the way I should be thinking. Um, one of the key entry points to this is around football, for example. And um, I was never somebody who I never really, I never liked team sports growing up. I was very much into tennis, into swimming, um, running. I was doing all the things that would just require me to be the best possible me for a sport rather than having to deal with other people. I was just like, not, um, I was not trusting of a lot of people. I was, I didn't really want to be around, um, a, a team. I just felt like it was, it was, it became a lot clearer to me as I grew older that that was more of the fact that I cared so much about so many other people that I would, be affected by particular elements, particular leaders in a team, or if um, if some if there was, you know, like when you're in a football team, for example, which I have been in one, um, and in a football team, and then you know you miss a goal or you let a goal in or something. It was never um, a it was never a hand around the shoulder sort of 
this is okay. Like, you know, I mean, you're going to miss something, you're going to miss some stuff. Obviously, it puts the team uh, in jeopardy. But the lessons there around mistakes um, were kind of shown to me quite highly when it came to boys and men that there was no room for mistakes. There was no room for um, learning. You have to get it right on the time or everybody is going to come down and you're like a ton of bricks. And then that becomes this kind of idea about how we kind of associate ourselves as men as we grow, as we grow up. And, um, you know, you can't fail at anything. You can't, you don't, the important things are winning. Rejection is something that you shouldn't be feeling ever. You shouldn't accept things not going your way, all of these different stuff. So all of these different, different patterns showed up. But alongside this all happening, one of the big things I recognized was about men and friendships. Um, and a lot of the friendships I grew up with at school um, and university, they were kind of crumbling around me for a while. And that really affected the way I worked and that affected the way I thought about myself. Um, and then I just thought to myself, you know what? I can't be the only one going through this. I must, there must be somebody out there who's kind of sharing similar ideas around what it means to be a man, what it means to, you know, uh, be overworked, what it means to not have the friendships they want, to not have the relationships they want. Um, to be struggling with their like how they identify with themselves and shame and all these other things. So I started a podcast <laughs> naturally. Mm. Um, and um, I decided that it was time to talk about a lot of these things. And surprisingly, a lot of people came forward and said they wanted to speak to me about stuff. I mean, what I did was present the idea to somebody for my first guest and they, and they said, yeah, they'll come. And then it just became it just became like a hub of conversation about what it means to be human, um, and the the lessons that we've learned along the way, the things that you know can kind like the things that have kind of tapped us into the people that we are, and the the our, you know aligning our dreams and our hopes, and you know just kind of just generally curating everyday wisdom for things. That, you know, because everybody goes through so many different experiences, um, and it's kind of it's kind of a huge fallacy to think that you're going through anything alone, because mm. uh, so many people we we are so connected on this earth to think that we're the only ones going through grief or the only ones going through loneliness or the only ones being betrayed or struggling at their job or you know and to, to think that that is the uh, to think that that's our that it's just us is something that we've been conditioned to believe um that we're individuals in all of this and while we do have an individual imprint we are very much a part of a collective of people which is why when we do meet people who share stories who share our same who share experiences, you know, who share things with people, have things in common, who recognize an idea of sameness with one another. We, be, we, we feel happier. We feel less lonely. We feel more connected and like, so that's where the podcast came from. And then the podcast developed into a book. Um, and yeah, I'm currently, I'm training as a psychotherapist. So, um, I'm learning a lot more about how we can be there 
for people um, with regards to working as a mental health professional. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much the 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 Cliff Notes version of the journey. Yeah, um, there's, there's a few things that I, I'd like to sort of dig into a bit. Yeah, more. Go I mean, for it. one is it just sounds like identity has been at times in your life a struggle. I mean, what was it? What do you think was expected? What sort of a, a bloke were you expected to be by your peers at school? Well, I'm a tall guy. I've been um, tall since. Uh, it's so funny because my reception photo, so the, the photo from when you first start school, when you're four, mm-hmm. I was like level height with everybody. I was yeah. in the front row because I was small and I was a premature child. And then you you flash forward to year five, six, when you're like 11. Yeah. I'm just like the tallest out of everybody. Right. Um, and quite like, you know, heavy. <laughs> so um, it, expectations for me was to be um, a boisterous boy. Yeah. Like I, you know, I was made... I don't know what it was. Did I beg to be on the football team in year six? Because that just felt like something that I should have been doing because so many people got chosen and I never got chosen and I wanted to be chosen. Is yeah. that something? That's the expectation. Then when I did get chosen, I was sent to mid um, because I was tall and I could kind of like, you know, defend, um, which I really enjoyed playing that. I really enjoyed that role and <laughs> that position. Um, I was just expected to to do the job that was required, you know, like I wasn't, it was never going to be a position of glory. <laughs> it was never going to be, I mean, you know, it was never the striker. It was never the midfielder. It was the center back. Mm. It was, it was that yeah, I had to kind of hold things up in the sense. That's where I kind of like took it and really acknowledged what it meant to be, um, to be on the team at that point. But I played rugby, broke my hand. And I felt, um, and I felt like a deep sense of shame when I played when I played rugby um, in year six. I'm, I'm breaking my hand in that way. Um, played basketball naturally because of my height. Mm. It was never, it was never because I wanted to play these things. It was literally just these are the things that you should be doing. Uh, when you went into journalism, was that yeah. a similar thing? Do you do you reflect on that now and think, well? Did I go into that because I really wanted to or did I go into it for other reasons? Because, you know, I get the vibe that y- your experiences in that world weren't that positive. Mm, no, they weren't that po- They weren't. They weren't great. Um, the initial I, my initial thing is my dad sent me this thing. He didn't quote unquote approve of where I, what I was doing. Mm. So I had to prove to him that I could do something that he would be approving of which I which I know now is a complete fallacy because he was really just happy for me just to do whatever but um, at the time I was like oh my gosh my dad wants me to you know leave this job and go into being an amazing journalist so okay so I decided to do that so there was him that was his, that was the expectation, expectation I held of him there then to go through the whole process of getting onto this trainee scheme it was a national trainee national applications and then um, to be down to like the final two, um, obviously two of us got the role, but um, got the roles that were designated for us. But um, to be down to that to that final interview and get that, it was like as soon as that happened, it was like okay, 
I've got to prove to these people that I'm worth having the role now. Mm. So it became less about my dad and his kind of ideas about what that what that was. But it then became, it, he got replaced by the news editors, the people, the managing editors, the people who kind of like had believed in me mm. as somebody who would be valuable in that role. So I was consistently driving, driving with this idea of, as pleasing somebody else rather than looking deeply at how I'm developing as a person in this role. Obviously, having worked a lot of newsrooms myself, they remain mm. predominantly white places, white. And sure. what was that like as a black man being in those okay. environments? So it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a problem until you start getting asked your pedigree and your background and your kind of... You know, people want to know more about where you came from sort of thing. Um, and that was generally the curiosity that came from a lot of my peers who are on my same kind of level. Um, older journalists didn't care. <laughs> they were just literally like, all right, come and just do the role that you that expected. But the people on my peer level were very, um, oh, you're from that scheme. Duh, that's why you're here. Oh, you didn't right. go to... X, Y, uni. Uh, okay, you're on that scheme again. Da, da, da. Or talking down to me about cultural things that I mm. I definitely have experienced. Um, you know, I was saying it was funny. We had there was this conversation around Bowie, um, mm. and I was like to them, I didn't grow up listening to Bowie personally. I only remember him from um, Labyrinth. And I remember the labyrinth, and I was like, "Oh yeah, the labyrinth." Yeah, I remember. I remember Bowie. Um, and they started, and you know, it was just this kind of discussion around otherness, and they were othering me and being like, "You yeah. need to know more about culture. You need to know more about you know. You need to up your music tastes. You need to do that. not I'm not necessarily recognize not necessarily recognizing that I am not from." their kind of upbringing or background. Some of these people were brought up yeah. on not in Notting Hill, bang, on like these multi-million pound estates and didn't and probably summered yeah. elsewhere for like a lot of their yeah. um yeah. For, their, for a lot of their youth and their childhood and whatnot. Or had uncles or cousins or aunties who were journalists who kind of fed them into all of these different channels and stuff. I never yeah. had that. And typically a lot of black people um, and a lot of um, Asian people don't have that those kind of connections in these 200-year-old organisations. So it was a lot of ostracising, there was a lot of kind of alienation um, in, in that way. But when I said the older people didn't really kind of do that, it was more of an ignoring than it yeah. was a sort of, oh my, like, yeah, rather than being like, oh yeah you know you're a person you're a human come let's do these other mm. things it was very much a there's a shield up of just difference there was a you're different to me i couldn't care less whether you are here or not like you know it was nerve-wracking whenever i was sent over to a particular to particular desks to ask a question about something or the photography desk nerve-wracking mm. heading over to like mm. older feature writers you know editors at large and all these people who've been there for like 60 years or whatever 
and mm. it was nerve wracking heading over to them because it was just this shock that they looked on your face of this incredulous, the incredulity. How dare you come over here? <laughs> sort of thing. I've never seen yeah. one of you up close. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean. Uh, and, and that's and that's where the whole you know you know of late there's been that whole diversity and inclusion thing you know the diversity box was checked but feeling included in the kind of organization within the team within all of that stuff again back to teams um wasn't didn't feel good so you just kind of you withdraw you just kind of like stay to yourself when you find out that you're being paid less than your peers by a good amount, um, it 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 messes with your self worth. It messes with mm. how you're valued. It messes with what you kind of what you feel you deserve. Um, when your pieces are kind of altered and minimized down, especially when you got when you know you got a good story, you know you got a good story, and it's mm. been from then it's been minimized from three hundred to probably a hundred words. Um, mm. in favor of somebody else's story that's on your desk or you know or you put or you send a story in and it's you know you've done all the checks and balances on it made sure that everything's correct and whatnot only to find the next day somebody else is on the byline with you for reasons that could not be explained properly um, mm. to me um, those are the things that were very that were very um, you know that were quite that prevailed quite often when I was when I was there, um, and it was and um, you know and I and I struggled with that. Because at first, I just thought it was inexperience, and then over time, it became a bit too systematic. <laughs> I was a bit like, "This is a bit weird." Because inexperience after four years, no, I don't know, I don't know. This isn't this isn't normal. This isn't normal. We are all at the same age and all have the same level of, you know, experience to an extent. So you saw people who you started with at the same yeah. time who were sort of progressing at a different yeah. rate. Getting more and it was and it was hard to see any tangible reasons yeah. for that, but but presumably they were white. Yeah, they were white. Very much so. White, very middle class very middle class um, and just yeah different to me to be honest so I mean obviously this is a mental health podcast but I'm so fascinated with your insight to that because you know you wonder is that yeah people people think about racism in institutions and, I, and I'm interested in it in the media because obviously that's my industry and I sort of think from the way you're describing it, it's like your kind of face fits or your your language fits or your references fit, maybe your clothes fit, and that kind of just makes your progression smoother. Mm -hmm. As long as you, as long as you don't show how different you are, you'll be fine. Um, and I was just talking to somebody on my podcast called Robin D'Angelo, um, and we spoke about nice racism, her book called How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. And there's a whole thing about this. And so literally what you just said just triggered the, I triggered the thought. That's why I had to go and grab the work. And it's the unconscious idea of it. It's not a conscious yeah. thing. So it's yeah. not as if I'm being sat there. I'm not, I'm, 
I'm sat there and somebody is pointing at me and explicitly saying you are black and X, Y, and Z, and that's why I'm not. Yeah, doing, yeah. It's not. You're not you're getting not the getting job because that. you're black. Exactly. It's not yeah. that. It's not that. Because I remember speaking to my head of news at the time and saying, you know. I am being othered and being pushed down, being alienated and X, Y, and Z. And he was like, if anybody is being racist, I'm going to come down and then like a ton of bricks, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, hmm, they're going to look at, they would, I said, you know, they would look at you in the face and say they're not. <laughs> and then you'll be, you have no choice but to believe them. So like, you know what I mean? Because on the surface, yeah. you would ident- he would identify with them on what it means to be racist rather than what I'm yeah. experiencing as racism in everyday experiences so it is unconscious it there are things that um you know that are going to be kind of go under the radar unless you are perpetually exposed to those kind of elements of you know racism Mm. and things like that things like you know discounting your experiences um i was definitely told what certain definitions um of caribbean culture were by people who were very much not Caribbean for all intents and purposes. I'm talking about Notting Hill Carnival, for example, as somebody who who is of Caribbean heritage, and that is a huge part of my you know identity and my culture and experiences. But I'm having a debate with somebody who is um, a blue-blooded kind of Viscount descendant of something who lives there in who lives there from yeah. like January to May goes to can or wherever for two months and comes back and lives there and he's like oh and you have to you don't have to clean up all the stuff that's outside your house on that day and da, 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 da. and I'm like oh uh, yeah and yeah. yeah but I have to I have to look at how these little intricate things affect my mental health you know because every yeah, of you know every single day there is an action there is a reaction there is an expectation there is a um cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com an assumption there are all these different things that happen when you are an other or you are an oppressed minority and have to step out of your home we've seen it with regards to women of late and we knew this about we knew this about women for a long time you know going out it's not safe we we try to we you know i've got sisters and stuff and i would be like call me if you need picking up call me like let me know you know what i mean so i if they call me at midnight and say can i pick them up i'll go like i'm not gonna question it sort of yeah. thing if they, um, i'll always question how do they know how they're getting back and stuff i won't have those questions asked of me i will always know how i'm getting back mm-hmm. but i will always make sure that that's the thing so there's that when you're a black person you know you've got you've got to step outside and are you going to be prejudiced is someone going to you know, confront you in a particular way? Are you going to be invisible? Are you going to be stared at? All these different things. Are people frightened of any potentiality that might happen with you? All these different things. When it was, you know, when coronavirus came out, um, it became as 
prevalent as it did, a lot of people who were East Asian were getting a lot of um, violence thrown their way, all these, all these different stuff. Queer people step outside, you know, can they live fully? Can they, can they, can they live in their expression, their full expression without fearing being attacked? for example, and all these different stuff. So there are so many different things that happen when you're an oppressed minority and they all affect how we think and feel about ourselves into any different thing. I mean, if I'd walked into the newspaper I was in and I was a white male, I'd probably still be there if I'm being 100%. I probably would still be there because, yeah. it, because it caters to me. It catered to everything that I expect. I walked in there as a man, fair dues. So there was a certain level of things I could get to, but I, but but yeah, I was black. Advantage. So therefore, yeah. that kind of like you know yeah. that means when it comes to being in comparison to say white women, I would lose out in a really in a in a in an interesting way. I didn't go to that class identity, all of those different things. I did listen to David Bowie growing up. I think that even if I had gone to um, a private school or Oxbridge or whatever, I probably have a better understanding of how to navigate those 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 realms. But I but I still think it probably would have ended up. I probably would still be in journalism, but probably wouldn't be at that paper. So I feel like there's a completely different, there are things, there are different pieces and they all kind of add differently to somebody else's story and experience, but they all matter. Um, so yeah, so when it does come to, come to all of that, and that's not to say that white men don't have a level of mental health issues that come with with just living in a society because they probably benefit they probably benefit the worst out of it or because they have to uphold so many different things that they just aren't seeing um a lot of the time who knows but i feel like we need to be having these conversations and be and having these kind of um and, and challenging these notions in order for us to actually fully sit down and understand one another what it sounds like to me is it's that sounds fucking exhausting. It's stepping in, it's stepping into a room and going to a counter and somebody staring at you because they don't, they don't expect you mm. to be in that shop at all. It's yeah. literally, it's literally that it's walking past somebody and sensing their fear. Or it could just be my whole nervous system going off, but sensing their fear around me walking next to them or just trying to get by. So you have to try and make yourself as less intimidating or as less frightening. So you smile, you yeah. you goof around, you try to loosen your body language because yeah. to make other people feel safe all the time, but then you don't feel safe because anything could go wrong. Anything could go wrong. Well, the conversation about mental health, which, you know, thank God, thanks to uh, people like you, you know, has, has opened up so much over recent years. But is there a cultural split there? Because I often look at, like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's around mental health. And it is true the conversation's opened up. But I do find it quite twee and middle class, quite feminised, which is fine, you know. Um, but I, I, you know, I know that it's mainly women who buy mm -hmm. these books or listen to a lot of these podcasts, right? 
is there also a racial thing? You know, do you think the conversation is different amongst uh, black and Asian people than it is might be between white and middle yeah. class people? Um, so two things. It's very interesting what you said about the feminizing of it. Um, yeah, feminizing. I think it's women have more of a they've been more socially accepted to speak about issues with one another. So socially, women will co- will connect, collaborate, talk, and share. Whereas men don't necessarily have that socially. Um, as I said earlier about friendships, um, it was very hard for me, and I've spoken to quite a few people since, about whether they have friends. Men and their friendship circles tend to be quite... Um, tentative they tend to be very specific things football friends go there watch watch the game that's it they're gonna like don't get too in depth we're gonna gonna get emotional about this team this game this thing also (laughs) we're gonna have lively engaged debates around the table around the formation around all this different stuff but as soon as somebody has an issue at home we don't really want to have to deal with that or grief yeah it's, it's, you're so right F- football right. is like an emotional placebo because we go and play out emotions around something that we know is just a contrived made up you know it's just it's I always say I mean I'm a big yeah. football fan but it's a child's game right with a ball <laughs> and we kind of play out like massive emotions yeah. around this nonsense almost as a way of because we're not going to play it out in reality because that's yeah. too brutal. Yeah. And I'm really interested. Certain people on the show, and I've spoken and made quite a few friends. Um, and, you know, they've literally, they've literally either been shunned through, from WhatsApp groups for speaking up in defense of women, they've been shunned from um, conversations because their grief of uh, their grief from having a divorce or losing their mom or parent has been too much for their friend to handle then anxieties from being a new parent mm. um, has left them feeling quite alone and drink and driving them to all sorts of substance abuse and that stuff. So that's when it comes to mental health socially, um, we're kind of, I'm in the process of really just re- trying to make sure that it's normalized that men speak about these things often. Um, yeah. Cause it's sort of like, uh, it's like people, you've got to yeah. be one of the lads, you've got to be a laugh. And if you're not that, yeah, you're kind of boring and weird. All this stuff. I'm just like, well, I'm kind of, I'm all about, you know, you yeah. can be both. It's not binary. You can be yeah. one of the lads. You can be a laugh, but you can also switch gear into talking about serious stuff because sure. that's part of being a grown up. Do you know what I mean? There's just being adult. Whereas I, I still think, and I think, you, you know, you actually, mm. God, you hit so many nails on the head, but like, yeah, it's just mm. you're not allowed to do that because people think, well, you're trading in your Jack the Ladder exactly. card, aren't you? And then it's like, what are we performing for? So that's kind of, that's one thing. The second mm. thing was about race. Now, race and ethnicity. Mm. Um, if we think back, if I, I if I speak specifically about the Caribbean and, the, and a, bit, a bit less specifically around empire, about what that what that means mm. for um, people who come from those kind of experiences in those communities, um, there there was no room for 
black people to have conversations around mental health in the 1900s. There was just never, in the late 1800s, mm. 1900s, there was no room for that. Um, while white women who would have their children and they had black women as wet nurses and nannies and all these different things, they could, these white women could go through their postpartum depression. They could go through, um, they could go to therapy. They could go to all of these different things. It just wasn't something that black people were allowed to do. It wasn't something that they didn't have. They remember they were three quarters of a, of a human. They were three quarters of a man. So they never had the full abilities that uh, that a full human, quote unquote, as in a white person could have. Therefore, it creates the stigma across those regions in generations to come after. So if you do have mental health issues, they aren't looked upon as something that they should be having. So there is always something. So, and, and when it is kind of, and when it does get kind of tricky is that they, when you start to, when you start to go to those positions of power, so doctors or priests t- typically in some places, they would say it's the devil. They would say it's all these different things. And, you know, you're predisposed to have those devilish tendencies and all these different things. And they kind of do it. Then you start to rely on spirituality. You start to rely on forcing those ideas out. It becomes a metaphysical experience um, because of the simple denying of the fact that you are supposed to be supported. Now, imagine you've got generations of of enslaved people who have then become freed who are trying to then explain their experiences as enslaved people only to be denied those experiences of being validated. So therefore that means not getting recompensation, not getting support, not getting economic support, building that economic support, then having those things burned down or whatever, or kind of destroyed because they shouldn't have those things. It does a lot to your mental well-being. And then those things get passed down, those stories get passed down, those ideas get passed down, and then it becomes part of the culture, it becomes part of persecution, it becomes part of family history and lineage, it becomes part of all these different things. So among particular racial groups, they do not necessarily speak about those people who are in their family who have mental health issues, who have mental health concerns, because it is a shame thing because you they are not living up to what we should be, we should have overcome as a group. We should be, should, again, that's why I say it's the exhaustion, as you mentioned earlier. So if I step out of the house now, I've yeah. got to make sure that I'm presenting well, I'm presenting okay. I'm not, I'm going through what I'm, I'm, everything is intact and it's fine because at the moment that a black person, specifically a man, exhibits um, psychosis, exhibits some sort of extreme um, reaction to, uh, to, to a treatment or to, or to the way they're treated in, in reality or whatever, they will be arrested under the Mental Health Act. They will be sedated and they will be sectioned nine times out of 10. So say all that to say, when it comes to racial makeups and groups, it, it's hard because you they want to hide and not be seen and be protected and protect ourselves from, from what could happen institutionally. You have kids who go into school and they are dyslexic 
dyspraxic, dyscal- dyscalculia, all these different things. They don't can't they they are neurodivergent. There is different ways for them to learn and experience, but it goes largely unnoticed because they are black. They are just put into lower sets. They are just put into underachievers. They become bored in class because no one is supporting them in their things and they become badly behaved. That puts them on the track. Yeah, like right. behavioural issues were often are often written written off quite readily, but by you know as it's oh well they're just badly behaved as opposed to perhaps in a more privileged and white environment mm-hmm. than a private school it might be oh we need to investigate this I wonder exactly. why they're behaving in this way and you do exactly. a bit more when, kind I, of examination when, I, when I read upon some people in history who have kind of um, been members of like the middle class or upper classes and they go to school and they've mm. been you know dyslexic and all these different things but still go on to to have success in places i was like yeah. very interesting that they, they just kind of just kind of breezed on through that way and they whatever but when you start to go down like yeah. to you know when it comes to black people other minority ethnics especially the white working class they suffer a lot when mm. it comes to second when it comes to schooling as well because a lot of them are neglected in that way, in the same ways. They receive benefit, they just benefit yeah. from the fact of being white, but their class does kind of put them at a huge disadvantage when it comes to, to things. Um, mm. When it comes to all of that, and then putting them being put on the pathway to just a life that, um, of, you know, they don't have options, they don't have opportunities, they don't have support, they don't have all of that because institutionally, and one institution, as I said, education, is failing them. Then you have health, and then you have law, then you have, you know, all of these other institutions that are creating things, it just creates difficulties. So so mental health is, what I'm hearing is, correct me if I'm wrong, so in some ways you're discouraged in the home yeah. from advertising Stays inside issues because it might let down your family, Culturally, it might be like, look, we don't, you need to hide that. It's dangerous. It doesn't sort of conform yeah. to what we're trying to present. But then but then also outside of the home, at school or with a doctor, there actually is a legitimate reason to be concerned that you're not going to necessarily get the response or the help yep. that you that you require. And so there is a, dis- a prevailing discouragement both mm-hmm. inside and outside of the home to sort of keep, the, yep. keep these things yep. inside. And... And when you start keeping things inside now, when you start keeping secrets, when they start only becoming behind closed doors, that opens up the part that opens up pathways for so many other things. So abuse within the home, it opens up things for you know dysfunction. It opens up all of this stuff. Um, there is it can a lot, lead to and a lot of anger as well. I had this conversation with a, with, a, with an academic in America called Eddie S. Gloud Jr. Um, and we talked about James Baldwin, mm-hmm. um, the author, poet. And he has he was in a conversation, and James Baldwin was in a conversation with another poet called Nikki Giovanni. And basically, long story short, is what, what happened. Nikki, a, a, a black woman, is having a conversation with James about love. And what James says is that he can't, as a black man, go outside and lie and come home and lie. And and, and what he means by that is that he leaves the house, he has to 
perform in a particular way. He can't tell the truth to people. He can't do that. But um, because if he does, you know, in those times, 30s, 40s, you know, you're very much going to be, you know, 50s, 50s, 60s. So you're like, you're you're in danger as a black person in America. But and he says when he comes home, he shouldn't have to lie to his wife or partner or whoever or his family about the realities of outside. But what Nikki says is really interesting is that she's like, why not? She's like, if you can go spend all day lying to somebody outside, you come home and tell me the truth, but you open up the doors to beat me up, to beat your kids up, to abuse me, to offload all of the pressures of outside on me. And that's when it, that's when the whole that's when yeah. obviously they meet at the race level, but they also then are you know at the gender level the um, the power starts to shift. Mm-hmm. So you then beat me up. You then share, share all these things to me. If you just take that take that specific context and just p- apply it to men who come home to their families and have to perform outside and have to perform a particular way, mm. you know, if you think of like the Billy Elliot stories, if you think of the, you know, we've got obviously we've got other black stories and whatnot, but um, even um, East is East in those kind of, I don't know if you've seen the film East is East, if you know what I'm, if you know what I'm saying, like the father... Yeah. Yeah. systematically yeah, abused yeah. the wife because he had a particular experience of being Pakistani in where was it in London or in the north or wherever they were and you know and yeah. obviously having to do that alongside his white wife and all these different things abuse abusive so you you cater that because men have to go outside have to perform have to especially Men of color, in particular, have to go outside, have to perform. And, that, come back, and like I say, you're exhausted, back, exhausted, you're angry, you're frustrated on the family. Yeah. And then when you start to say, we don't want our yeah. business put outside, everything stays inside. So when mm-hmm. a child then goes to goes to school and is distressed because they didn't sleep, because all they heard was arguing, because they didn't eat, because their mum or dad was X, Y, and Z, and, you know, there's dysfunction and emotional irregulation going, but they come to English class and they've got to concentrate and be focused on um, Shakespeare, on a monologue by Romeo. And you just like to yourself, yeah. you, just, you know what I mean? All of these things kind of all piece together and like nothing is in isolation because everything is so connected. So the feelings of disbelief, the feelings of that like, you can't, you don't want, you don't believe in yourself, the feelings of you know, acting out, feelings of wanting to get attention, feelings of all this stuff, feelings of being behind and of lacking and, you know, all of that stuff. It, it shows up in all of these institutions. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot to it. And there is no one straight answer. The, yeah. <laughs> like, it's a, lot of, it's a lot of stuff. I listen to people. I, li- I, I, I love people generally. I want to hear what their perspectives are. I want to have these conversations with people that don't necessarily look like me or have my personal experience and whatnot. I just want to, I just want to figure out how we can be better and what lessons we can then bring to create a better world. Alex, it's such a pleasure talking to you. You know, I have huge admiration for everything that you've done with time to talk. Uh, with the book and the podcast and all stuff surrounding it. It's really great work. I can recommend it to everyone. And I just uh, really appreciate you spending the time to talk to me today. It is an absolute pleasure.
There you go, Alex Holmes. I found that conversation really thought-provoking. Talking to Alex is an education. I encourage you to listen to his podcast, Time to Talk, which I was a recent guest on, but don't worry, he's got loads of other more interesting guests than me. He's also written a fantastic book, uh, spun off the podcast, also called Time to Talk, and that's available in all the usual places. Very much worth reading. If you don't do so already, please subscribe to the Reset Newsletter at sandelaney.substack.com for my weekly writing on mental health and all that jazz. Thanks for listening, gang. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.